The disciple of Christ should look nothing like the world. Our behaviors, our motivations, our habits should all be radically different. So much so that people wonder what that's all about. And they ask themselves, why don't you make yourself the center of attention? Why is it your art isn't about being at the top of the heat, that that's, that that's really what you're concerned about? Or how much money I can make being a success, having all the stuff. They might ask, why is Jesus such a big deal to you? How come you're not campaigning for the big cause in the world right now? Good grief, there's so many different things, disciples. You see, difference, distinction, is to be a hallmark. We're going to see what that looks like in this episode. Howdy, disciples, and welcome to the Creator's Calling Podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Matson, and we're going to let the Lord minister to us, speak to us in our hearts and in our lives through His Word. You know, God's so good. There is so many things here that the Lord has for us as we jump back into the book of Second Peter. Now, We'll review a little bit for our last episode so we can just sort of pick up and swing through right into uh, this episode. You know, last episode we went through verse 2. And that means that between the first episode way back in uh, the 11th episode, wow, I just it's hard for me to believe, to this one that we've covered like this opening salutation that Peter gives. And so we've covered those things, and as we've seen, Peter here, he's talking to the church broad. There's not like a particular audience that he's speaking to, uh, a particular church group or peoples. He's talking to all of us. That's so important. When you read this letter, he's talking to everybody. He's talking to every believer in Christ. That's his audience. And Peter knows, we saw this last time, Peter knows his days are short. We're gonna, he's going to tell us that further on in the chapter. And he wants to impart the things that he knows are important for those that come after him. See, his, his mind is thinking ahead. He's thinking about those that come after him. And his whole goal here is to tell them the things that are really important to know. So that they can finish well. That they can walk in victory. Now, we looked last time. It, what it is, you know, what is it we're building on? The question came up, uh, what is it we build on? And, you know, there's so many things that we can build our lives and our careers on. But ultimately, we looked at, well, okay, what's the foundation of it all? And we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and <clears throat> Paul writes there, he says, you know, you can build on gold, silver, precious stones, or you can build on wood, hay, and stubble straw. And of course, we went into depth about what each one of those represents. But if Christ is our focus, then we will be fulfilling what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 3 and the calling that he's given us. One of the things we saw was that Peter started poorly. 
but he finished strong. And then we compared Peter's life to what Paul wrote to Timothy, the second Timothy chapter four, verse seven. We looked at all of that. And that is that desire to end our race well. Disciples, I pray that your desire, your big desire in life, glorify Christ, end your race well. And all that that entails. It certainly doesn't mean it'll be easy. But Peter's going to encourage us here. And we saw that Peter was writing this letter as well to counter false teaching. You know, Paul had warned about it. We looked at that. And of course, it had permeated the church all over the place by this time. And boy, we see it today. So he's writing these things. He's going to counter false teaching. And as he does, the things that he addresses here are going to be things that will cause us to be strengthened and to be emboldened. Now, remember, we saw this last time. What are the false teachings? What are the false things that were coming into the church, even this early, that he's writing against, he's writing to warn us about? Remember, there were skeptics, and these skeptics were very specific. It was about predictive prophecy. This idea that the return of Jesus is true. This idea that there's going to be judgment by God. All of those things. These false teachers are coming by and they're questioning all of this. The second thing we saw is that the false teachers, there were some who were questioning the idea of the world being destroyed. Oh, come on, the world's eternal, they thought. And these teachers were saying that, no, don't listen to this this thinking about the world coming to an end any time. The third thing we saw was that some of these false teachers were coming in and they were promising freedom of some sort. We looked at why that was so important and the fact that any movement that really, you know, that was going to gain traction, they were going to promise the freedom of to the people of some kind, some kind. And then, of course, lastly, we saw that there were people, the false teachers in the church, that were encouraging and they were endorsing. They were endorsing and encouraging sexual immorality, greed. Boy, you know, it's just, it's amazing to me. Uh, when you look at what Peter's dealing with here, nothing is different. You know, these false teachers were feeding the flesh. They were feeding the desires of the most depraved things. And that's what they were trying to draw. And remember, we saw Acts chapter 20, Paul warned that they were going to draw this from within the church now, draw people after themselves. And he compared them to fierce wolves. Disciples, there's going to be people that come along and they want to you, have you follow them. It's a personality cult. It needs to be following Christ. Paul makes that point earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. So Peter is writing us here. It's extremely relevant. And you know, in our world that we move and live in, in terms of our careers, in terms of, in terms of the arts, we're exposed to all of this and we're exposed to it from every direction. And the sad truth is we're surrounded by people who have bought into some or all of it. And some of them, of course, they're buying into it all the while claiming the name of Christ. And of course, then there's others who don't even realize that what, they, what they're doing, what they're following, what they've bought into is a lie. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said about the people of his time. This is Isaiah chapter 5, verse 13. It says, Therefore, my people go into exile, key phrase, for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, 
and their multitude is parched with thirst. Now, Isaiah here, he's lamenting how God's people, the Jewish people, they've turned away from the Lord. And he says, you'll notice, they're my people, God speaking, therefore my people go into exile for a lack of knowledge. Now, that imagery is really important. It's important for us right now. Remember, now, Isaiah's prophesying. There's false prophets everywhere. Now, he's in Judah. He's in the southern kingdom. And these false prophets are telling lies to the king of the northern kingdom as well as Judah, the southern kingdom. And, of course, they're contradicting everything Isaiah is saying. The northern kingdom was on the verge of falling to the Assyrians. And the people of Judah... Of course, Isaiah's warning them that the same thing could happen to you. You need to get back to the Lord. Now, imagine this. Isaiah prophesied these things. Isaiah speaks about this for 30 years to the, of the northern kingdom of what's going to happen. And then it falls. He warned Judah right where he, of course, he lived in Jerusalem. And he's telling them, Turn to the Lord. Depend on him. Otherwise, what's happening up north, and what eventually did happen up north, it's going to happen here. But Isaiah's advice was ignored for decades until Hezekiah comes along. Now, here again, we're in the southern kingdom. And Hezekiah was a good king, one of the few. And he listened to the voice of Isaiah. He listened to what the Lord was saying. And what happened was miraculous. You'll remember the story. Sennacherib has come in. He surrounded Jerusalem and he says, oh, I'm going to take you. And then Isaiah, or pardon me, Hezekiah goes and he prays. He lays out the letter that, he, that uh, Sennacherib has written. And listen to what happens as he prays to the Lord. It says, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And as, this is so good, and as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esar Hayden, his son, reigned in his place. You see what happens to Necherib? He is flying in the face of God. But Hezekiah says, I'm going to trust him. If you read the story, it's fascinating. Because the odds are overwhelming. Jerusalem looks like it's going to crumble. But Hezekiah relies on the Lord as his defense. And the Lord comes and performs this absolutely overwhelming miracle. And then Sennacherib, he's praying to his God. His God doesn't protect him from anything. He gets struck down right there in his own God's temple. Now, I want you to think about this, disciples. Think about it in terms of this Old Testament context. He's in the very temple of this God who is supposedly trying to worship him. And we could, we could talk for episodes about how they viewed these, these gods and what was really going on there. But the bottom line is, in this God's own temple, he couldn't protect Sennacherib from being struck down. But Hezekiah, 
turn to him in God's temple as he praises, he lays that letter out before the Lord. Whole different thing. God goes out and he responds because he is a God of all power. It's a matter of just saying, Lord, I trust you. What's the overwhelming thing right now? Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust what you can do? Are you going to trust what God can do? Are you going to trust what looks like is overwhelming and say, oh, no, it's... Or are you going to go to the Lord in prayer? You see, Isaiah knew the truth about what it meant to follow the Lord and be truly dependent on him. Disciples, whenever we are in that place and the challenges are there, we will always have the choice. Will we depend on God or will we depend on somebody or something else? Isaiah knew what it was to live a life that would see victory. The imagery, too, there's one other thing that's really important. I've mentioned it before in other little studies and things, but I bring it up here because this is what Isaiah refers to. You see, this idea of going into exile for a lack of knowledge. What's the lack of knowledge? The lack of knowledge is the lack of the knowledge of the God of Israel. It sends them into exile. And disciples, here's the deal. We are either... In our walks with the Lord, we are either walking into exile or we're walking into exodus. Exile, exodus. What does that mean? Here's what it means. If we are walking into an exodus, what we're doing is moving toward God and following him. Think about what happened in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They followed God. They were were following the cloud. They were in exodus towards something. Following God's steps. That's what an exodus is. Exile is when we're moving away from God's presence and ways. And here's the thing for you and I. We're either walking in an exodus towards God and his ways to where he's taking us, or we're going into exile. And there's no gray area here. You're either moving one way or the other, and that is constant. There's no standing still. Now, you'll see that pattern all through the Old Testament, and you'll see that pattern in your life and in my life as well. Exodus or exile? Are we following the Lord, moving forward to where he has for us, or are we not? Peter knew all about this, and As we saw last time, the first desire that Peter points us to, and it's key to moving in the direction the Lord has for us in our calling. We looked at all of that in verse 2, that key desire. And then we come to verse 3. We're going to move into that in this, in our next move, so to speak, our next section. We're looking to look at verse 3 in this episode, verse 4 next time. And these things, they kind of follow. You've got, first of all, verse 2. It's about grace and peace being multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God. We looked at all of that. And then in verses 3 and 4, there are two things that are granted to us, that God has granted to you and I. And they're key. So Peter lays these things out. These things are written following verse 2 so that we 
can have them become truth in our lives. If we are multiplying in God's grace, peace, and knowledge, then what we're about to read becomes an increasing reality in our lives. I'm going to repeat that. If we are multiplying in God's grace, peace, and knowledge, then what we're about to read will become an increasing reality in our lives. Now, we're going to read verses 3 and 4. Like I said, we're going to just cover verse 3 on this episode. We'll cover verse 4 next time. But listen to what, what Peter writes here. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now, in verse 3, you see the direct connection here between the knowledge of God and what has been granted to us, this promise that the Lord has given us. The first thing Peter points us to is the source of power for anything that we achieve in our lives. The source of power for anything we achieve in our lives. Now, Jesus said this very plainly. This is John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Wow, that's a stinging statement to our pride. He says, I'm the vine. I'm the one that feeds you. I'm the one that gives you the nutrients. You're a branch. You're, you get from me. And when you are, there's going to be fruit. And that fruit will be the fruit of God's work. It's going to be the fruit of the Spirit. It's going to be the fruit of things done that make an eternal difference. We want to bear fruit like that. Jesus says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Could you imagine like taking a branch off of a, let's say, an apple tree? And you just kind of, you set it over on the counter and you just wait for the apples to appear. Well, what's going to happen to that branch? Yeah, it's going to shrivel up. You're never going to, you're going to wait a long time. You're not going to see any apples. Jesus is drawing a powerful analogy for you and I. We have to be constantly being fed by him to produce fruit. You see, our pride will cut us off. Our pride will say, ah, don't, don't need that, that pesky vine. After all, you know, it's kind of restrictive. That means I have to stay kind of plugged in right here. I can't go move around all over. I can't go do what I want. We've got to be plugged into him. And it's a contradiction to what the world will tell us. So we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to go about our work and our lives? Is it in confidence that we can do it all? Is it in the fact that we have got such abilities and that we can learn and improve? So that means that I can just go out and take care of things? Is it because that we've accomplished so much that everybody else just looks at us in amazement, just honoring us? You know, those are all massive temptations that can happen in the arts. Why? Because people look at what you do, your writing, your music, your art, your performance, it, any of it. 
They look at you in awe of what you do because they can't do it. And so it's a temptation to say, man, look at me. But that's not what Jesus said. It's because of the power he's given us. And he's given us divine power. Oh boy, what an important distinction here. He's given us divine power. This is the power of God that he will work through us. It's his power. And whatever takes place is a result of that. And he's granted it to us. We're going to look at all this. This is, we really need to get our minds wrapped around it. You know, Moses gave the Israelites a warning. And again, this goes back. Deuteronomy is so filled with wonderful wisdom. And of course, the New Testament pulls from it. It's the most quoted book by Jesus is Deuteronomy. There's a reason for that. Not only he fulfill it, but there's so much there that just takes us right into uh, what a life following him is all about. But listen to the warning that Jesus give, uh, that Moses gave to the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, beware, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. I want you to notice just how self-pointing this is. He says, my power, my hand, me. And then he says, but you're saying this to, your, to yourself in your heart. So inside, you're so puffed up, and it's all about you. It's all about you. And he says, beware. This is going to be something that can happen. You can come to the place where you think it's all about you and what you've done. And the world feeds that. And it's a danger for the follower of Christ. Peter tells us it's his divine power. It's his divine power. You know, the world, Satan, wants you to think you're the, you're the be-all and end-all. Now, remember Isaiah chapter 14, the five I wills of Satan. Here's the beginning of his little rant. He says, you said in your heart. Now, this is what Satan has said. Ezekiel's recording the words of Satan here. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Of course, he's talking about all of the rest of the divine beings, all of the rest of the angelic host. I will set ascend to heaven above the star. I'm going to be the top dog. I'll set my throne on high. I would listen to his imagery. I'm going, to, I'm going to overtake God's throne. I'm going to sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. Now, we could really go off on some stuff here, but I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of it. What Satan is saying here, he's, he's telling you who he depends on and what he is going to do. You notice all of the eye imagery. Oh, I am. All, it's all about me. I can do this. That's the ultimate confidence in his own ability. He's going to sit on a throne where God sits on the Mount of Assembly. That language speaks very specifically of the very throne room of God. And he says, I'm going to take God's place on his throne. See, that's what he's going to tell you and I. He's going to chime right in and say, yeah, it is all about you. Boy, how'd he look at you? And remember, we can. We can do a lot of things. In our own strength, the Lord has given us skills and abilities. If you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 11, this is the Babylon event or Tower of Babel event. And he says, as, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. That's Babel, Babylon. 
And they settled there. And now listen, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. In other words, we're going to make something really stout. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, so they have very permanent uh, building materials. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to, to the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. You see, we have abilities. And when you see this combined effort of man, this is a total rebellion against God. They're going to make bricks. And it's very interesting. There's so many things that are interesting to me here. Because he says they're going to burn them. In other words, here's this is going to be fireproof. Why is that important? Because of what we're going to say late, see later in the book of Second Peter and the ends of this earth. So that really ties in there. But he says, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a city for ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to be dispersed over the whole earth. So you can see this idea of man uniting against what God has said. God had said they were to go out. Remember after Noah's flood, they were to go out. They said, no, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to rebel against God. And that's exactly what they, they, they did. What are they building for? Themselves. Ultimate act of pride. How high are they going to build? Till the tower's top is in the heavens. Now, remember the context in which Genesis is written. The high place, the mountaintops, those types of things. The gods, the gods that the other people worship lived in the heavens. And so they were these mountaintops. That's where they pictured the gods living. So they're building their own mountaintop so they can be their own god living up where the other gods are after all. It's a, the picture is just amazing to me. And you talk about seeing the pride of Satan and it's like, oh, good grief. You see, man wants to be his own god. Well, why wouldn't he? They're following Satan. The third thing we see is they were going to make a name for themselves with a specific purpose. They said that, you know, we don't want to be dispersed over the face of the earth. This is united. This is the whole world coming against God. Hmm. Hmm. I look around today and say, things haven't changed much. In fact, it's coming together in a way nobody could have pictured before. Now, the rebellion against God and man becoming God himself, putting himself in God's place. What a picture of what we see today. And God agrees they would be able to do these things. Not only that, but, you know, right at the beginning, they're going to be able to accomplish whatever they set their minds to. Oh, good grief, we could go off on all kinds of things here. The bottom line is, yeah, we can accomplish some things. But those things will never be of eternal worth. They'll be all about our own glory, our own pride, all of that. But they're never going to be a, about eternal worth. It's always driven by self. And that is juxtaposed to what Jesus tells us. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says, And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he would be last of all and a servant of all. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, 
and follow me. So we've got Peter telling us here first, this divine power has been given to us. It's been granted to us. Why? We're going to serve others through what we create. We're presenting hope to them as we see the world through the lens of Scripture. God's divine power is at work through us. We're his instruments. And see, here's what's happening, disciples. We're giving eyes and words and music and performances, all of that by his power to give the world hope. What you're doing is giving the world hope. Divine power is creating and giving, giving vision to divine hope. And the world can't get that anywhere else. The world can't get that vision anywhere else but through the follower of Christ, empowered by God through his Spirit. Again, we're back in the book of Isaiah. Look at what Isaiah writes. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. He said, He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Now, that word translated in the ESV, faint, it can also be translated, perhaps your translation says, weary. God gives power to the weary. Jesus knows how we feel. You see, he dealt, he knew, he knew what it was like to be weary, and he would have to rest. You remember John chapter 4, Jesus is meeting the woman by the well, and he says there, John 4, 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was almost the sixth hour. Now, when we see that word weary, weary there, it's kopeo in the Greek. And it means to be tired from the journey. Okay, It says there that he was tired. And why was he tired? From the journey. Following Christ is a journey. We're going to get wearied. We're going to be tired. Why? It's a long journey. It's not an easy journey. Being an artist, being in the creative field, isn't easy. Jesus knows how we feel being wearied. But also, Peter tells us it's his divine power that we have. See, eternal things are accomplished not through our own strength, but through his and I love the fact that as well, that when we, he, Isaiah tells us when we have no strength, the Lord through his spirit strengthens us. And all of this is granted. His divine power, the work of the Holy Spirit, what we need for anything that we're doing, is what produces the things of true value. That ability to learn, to improve, to comprehend the things you couldn't before, they're all a part of God's divine power working in you. That power that created the universe, it's working in through. It's at our disposal as he works through you. Listen to how Paul prayed for the Colossian church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. He says, Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy. Boy, listen to all of the alls there. He says, we're being strengthened with all power. He's praying this for the Colossian church, that they would be strengthened with all power. That's this divine power here that Peter's talking about. 
everything we need, all endurance. Now, the idea here is the capacity to hold up or to bear up under times of difficulty. All endurance, no matter how difficult it is. And boy, do we ever need that. Now, you'll notice here this divine power, uh, Peter writes, says, has been granted to us. Go down to verse 4. He says, by which he has granted to us, and he goes on to something else that's been granted, granted to us. Dorosome is the Greek word, and it means to present something as a gift or to confer as a benefit. This is totally a free gift. The divine power that God gives us, that Peter is pointing us to, we don't have to worry about earning it. We don't have to worry about being worthy of it. It's a gift, and it's conferred as a benefit to you. His divine power that works through you, his spirit that works through you, is a gift, and it benefits you as you do his work. It's because of God's grace. And, of course, we can go right back up to the connection with verse 2. The more you know about his grace, the more you know about the peace that he gives you, the more you know about God and of Jesus, all of that, then the more we understand this free gift, this gift that we couldn't earn, and the power that gives us everything that pertains, Peter writes, to life and to godliness. There's two things here specifically for you and I. First of all, he says he's granted... Remember, it's conferred to us as a gift and benefit. All things. And it means just that. There's not one thing you need in your walk with the Lord and in your work for him that's being held back. Always remember that, disciples. God is not holding back on you. There's not something he's saying, oh, no, you know, they just, they're not good enough. He's not holding back. There's nothing you need that he's holding back from you. Matthew chapter 7 verse 11 says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now if we go to Luke's gospel, listen to how Luke phrases this same one. He says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Do you see the connection that Luke and Matthew are making here? You see, when you have the Holy Spirit, there's gifts that come with him. We read about that, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. That's the fruit of the Spirit. There's gifts as we go through and we look at all of the different gifts that Scripture talks about within the church. There's all kinds of gifts that the Lord gives to each one of us as we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit when we're saved. And you see, part of that is power. Now, there's two things that these, this power of the Holy Spirit is to be used for in your life and in mine. It's not to be used. Remember, this isn't about using and saying, you know, this is, I can, boy, I got this kind of power, good grief. What is it I can do for me? No, it's about desiring what God wants and making his desires yours. That's part of the role of the Holy Spirit as well. It's acquiescing our wills to the Lord's. And you know the Lord wants the best. 
I like the way the Net Bible uh, translates this. It says that he has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. So when Peter writes this, he's granted us everything necessary for life and godliness. The Greek word here for life is zoe, and it's a reference to God as the originator of life and the one who maintains it. What is it you need to maintain life in you right now? And remember what life means scripturally. It means not just physical life, but it means also being in God's presence, being connected to him. That's what life is. Remember, death is being separated from God. Life is being connected, being in his presence. Zoe. So we see this whole thing here. He says he's granted us everything, everything we need. All that's necessary has been granted, given as a gift to you. He is the source of life. Romans chapter 8, verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. People are either living or dead, and it's Christ that makes the difference. We're in a world of death, and that is becoming more and more evident every day. So what is it that people need to see more of? It's the things of life, the things of life in Christ. They need to see that more than ever. Remember, disciples, the things that you're writing, the things that you're portraying in your visual arts, that you're performing, that you're singing, any of these things, they should be things of life. Because that's who Jesus is. And you know, people need to see that. They need to see it more than ever. What you're doing every time you create through his power is you're showing them what true life is. First Corinthians chapter nine, for, pardon me, chapter two, verse sixteen says this for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You right now have the mind of Christ. No one can teach God anything because he knows everything. But because of that, he has every answer to every problem that we're going to face. That's a truth the world knows nothing about. But they can see it and hear it from you. That truth is what they need to become visible in the lives of faithful followers of Christ that depend on him. When we see this word next, he says he's all pertain to life and godliness. Eusebia is the Greek word here, and it carries the idea of reverence, piety, and loyalty to an awesome God. Okay? Godliness. You revere God. You live like you revere God, and you're loyal to him. Nothing's going to take your focus off of him. You're going to follow Jesus. It doesn't matter what comes up. What a powerful testimony that is. You're in the midst of a trial, but you follow Jesus. You know, people take notice of that. Why? Because, just as our word definition tells us, he's an awesome God. He's an awesome God. And see, this is where the rubber meets the road. Are we consistently loyal to our awesome God, and do we live like it? Is our compromise being driven out so that we are loyal to him? You know, we're seeing massive compromise in the church all over. And as we saw with this, what Jesus taught about salt. If you lose your saltiness, you get trampled. And of course, it does nothing good for the world. 
And we can always be seen as outdated. We can be seen as all kinds of things by the world. But we want to be loyal to him and not compromise his word. Remember the warning to the church at Thyatira. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, is in teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Oh, good grief. It's everywhere in our society. It's happening even in the church or the so-called church, maybe I should say. What about the warning at Sardis? It says, And the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has seven spirits of God and seven stars, I know your works, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you'll not wake up, I will come like a thief. They're not even going to know Jesus is coming. I remember we're called, First Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us, we're called to know the season. And you won't know the day or the hour I'm going to come. And then we have, of course, the Laodicean church, Revelation 3, 15 through 17. And there, they're lukewarm. Jesus, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You see, power has been granted to us for life and godliness, not for compromises with the world and Satan. And you'll notice what Peter does here at the last part of our verse. Through the knowledge of him who called us. Disciples, he's called you. Called you. As you increase in knowledge of him, it generates excitement for how we create and how we live. And what's the purpose? Peter tells us. To his glory. His own glory and excellence. See, that's the driving motivation. God's glory. God's excellence. If we're going to live as a victor, verse 3 gives us the power and explains what it all means so that we can keep pressing on forward successfully as a victor just like Peter did. Oh, good grief. What a passage. This is just so good, disciples. The Lord is so good to us. You know, next time, here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue on, of course, in the book, not in our next episode on this, because uh, what I'm going to do is intersperse these uh, teachings as through the book, along with interviews and with other discipleship uh, things as well, the things that we're going to do. So, man, I can't wait to see what the Lord has next for us. Thank you so much for listening, disciples, to the podcast. Don't forget to share, to give a review for the podcast on your favorite platform. Right now, disciples, you know there's somebody, when you look at this, you look at what Peter tells us here in verse 3, good grief, who doesn't need to hear that? Share the podcast with somebody that they can hear God speaking to them through his word here. And if you can, give a review or rate it on your favorite platform. What that'll do is uh, get it, have it easier to find on that platform. Now, you can keep in touch with me on Instagram or on Gab at The Creator's Calling. The music on the podcast is by Chris Madsen Worship, and you can follow him on Instagram or on YouTube at Chris Madsen Worship. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And please, join me next time as together we follow Jesus and listen for The Creator's Calling. Bye for now.